you know, when you're curious about something, you're sort of pulled off in multiple directions. Hey, I'm glad you're listening today. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. At the close of his elegant and exhaustive biography of Leonardo da Vinci, Walter Isaacson offers a list of the habits we might learn from Leonardo. First on the list is to be relentlessly and randomly curious. It goes on to include retaining a childlike sense of wonder, seeing things unseen, respecting facts. Somewhere in the middle is get distracted. Knowing what we do about Leonardo, that makes sense. The man was all about everything. It's clear he was attracted, if not distracted, by everything from the functioning of a woodpecker's tongue to the patterns of flowing water. But distraction has a bum rap. So I was intrigued when it showed up as the central thesis in one approach to educational philosophy, or as today's guest would put it, a radical rethinking of educational potentialities. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. And I'm always up for a conversation about thinking about curiosity from a fresh perspective. Enter Tyson Lewis. Tyson is associate professor in the College of Visual Arts and Design at the University of North Texas. I'll just say preparing for this conversation was particularly rich. He's gotten me thinking about everything from massifying experience in the cinema to formulating tests that can only be passed by failing them. So welcome, Tyson. Thanks for having me. So you say you want to see if curiosity has any educational value and then if it's ever educationally desirable to be just curious about something. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so I I teach in the College of Visual Arts and Design, and I teach a lot of sort of philosophical and theoretical classes that are dialogic-based, so I have very dynamic dialogues in my classes. And students often raise their hands, and they'll say something like, Professor Lewis, I'm just curious about, or I'm just curious, but. And I find this very curious. You know, why, why do students have to preface their questions with, I'm just curious, what is the function of that? So I started thinking about this, and I thought, well, maybe this actually reveals something about the nature of curiosity. And there are many possible ways of interpreting just curious, but what what I'm most concerned with is this idea that perhaps the just in just curious means that there's something about curiosity that's tangential or that the the concern they're about to raise is unimportant or perhaps a trivial side interest. So being just curious means that curiosity has a dimension to it that incorporates a kind of inconsequential distraction, right, Uh that that might lead off topic. This very innocent-sounding phrase that my students use is actually full of philosophical insight into this aspect of curiosity that I feel has been undervalued in educational philosophy, and that is its fundamentally distracting or distractive nature. Right. Well, and you write somewhere that 
there should be room in education for daydreaming, flights of fancy, and intellectual wandering. So how does that fit in an educational philosophy? Because it's not typically what we think of, right, in the educational uh, norm. Right. So the whole, I mean, you could think of like the whole history of philosophy of education basically privileges and focuses on cultivating attention. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of philosophers who argue that, no, what actually defines the work of schools is forcing attention. And that's a, that's a literal phrase, forcing attention. Even, even more so, the attention is not only an educational goal to be achieved through schooling, but is also kind of considered an ethical norm. So if you aren't attentive, it's a kind of ethical failing. And so to be ethical people, you have to care deeply by investing yourself in specific focal practices uh, that are meaningful to you, and that's how you discover the nature of the self, the nature of your being in the world, right? So to be an ethical person means to be attentive to something. And so really focusing on distraction is (laughs) distracting the history of philosophy of education from its obsession, really, with, with attentiveness and trying to argue that well, maybe we need to think distraction on its own terms, not simply mm-hmm. as a lack or a deficit or an obstacle to be overcome, but rather as containing within itself maybe a new form of diffuse, open-ended attunement to a diversity of things in the world. And that this, this could be actually quite productive in its own way and not, not simply negative. It's not being detached or vacuous or disinterested. It's about a lack of goal orientation? I mean, is that part of what this is? Yeah, I think so. It's, uh, you could describe it as letting yourself fall off track, letting yourself be uh, caught up in various seemingly unrelated projects or, or episodes. So there's this kind of randomness, uh, openness or yielding quality to curiosity where you, get, you can um, let yourself be sort of taken up into these things that you don't will, you don't necessarily have control over. So is distraction the same thing as curiosity? It's not, it's not exactly the same, but I would say that, that curiosity has a kind of distracted dimension to it or, mm. or kind of distracting dimension. So, you know, when you're curious about something, you're sort of pulled off in multiple directions. Uh, your eye can be snagged by some seemingly inconsequential detail of something. It can throw you throw you off your course. You have to take a double double take, you know, uh-huh. uh, squint your eyes, this kind of stuff. And so it has the possibility of throwing you throwing you for a loop in a certain in a certain sense. And I think that this is what characterizes it versus att- attentiveness, because attentiveness is always about sort of a s- single focus, narrowing your vision to to one thing in particular. Whereas distraction is about opening up an array of of phenomena become open to you. So that's interesting. Is it then a kind of fleeting thing or can one be in a protracted, distracted state? I mean, because if if your attention's drawn or your attention's redirected and you're distracted to something, are you then attracted to it and then focused Mm -hmm. there or is there something different? Good. Yeah, this is a great question. So, so one of the thing, one of the problems with educational philosophy is that it is always focused on attention and has neglected to pay 
to pay homage to the educational possibilities of distraction. That's mm-hmm. one problem. Another problem is that you often see a, uh, curiosity conflated with the will or willing something. The way I like to think about it is that curiosity is a sort of event that strikes us, and that poses a challenge to the will. So, you know, some, some strange detail hits you, and you're taken back by it, and you become curious about it, and then that cho- poses a kind of challenge to the will to follow through on it, to become mm-hmm. attentive mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. But this is not necessarily the case, right? So, for instance, with, my, with the kids in my class, when they say things like, oh, I'm just curious, you know, this means that it's very low stakes, right. very low cost. Right. There's, no, there's no insisting on me answering the question or the class following through on the question. It's just raising it as an occasion uh, in the class for some kind of inquiry or the possibility of inquiry. And that's a curious moment, right? There's a kind of break with the direction of the conversation, the introduction of some new detail, and we could follow through on it or maybe not, right? Uh, It depends on if it poses a challenge to the will, the will of the individual, my will, or the will of the class. So being just curious means that we could just as easily drop it and go on to something else as we could maybe pick it up and it becomes a topic of concern and attentiveness. So I think that curiosity can lead to attentiveness or attentiveness can can sort of lead to curiosity, but they're not the same thing, nor are curiosity and willing the same thing. There's so many different directions we could go with this because I've been interested in, you know, the show was called Choose to be Curious, right? This involves choice. Mm -hmm. This involves an expression of will of some sort. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in having some conversations about, like, can you make that choice? I mean, you sort of make a case for bringing distraction into the learning experience. What what does that actually – what would that look like? Yeah. So I think think that a teacher, for instance, can open up spaces for curiosity uh, in the classroom in multiple ways. And one of the ways is not being so prescriptive about what's going to happen in a classroom. So, for instance, in my classes that I teach, I engage students in a lot of, a lot of experimentation. And by experimentation, I don't mean the sort of scientific model of experimentation, where you have a hypothesis, and then you test the hypothesis, so you're looking for particular outcomes, and you're gauging those outcomes in terms of a set of uh, predefined observational um, norms, let's say. No, I don't mean that kind of experimentation. I mean like radically open-ended experimentation, real Mm risk-taking, where you don't know what's going to happen. And so when you don't know what's going to happen, something unexpected can appear and throw you off course, can snag your eye, right? Uh, Some strange detail of experience that's in the background can suddenly come shooting into the foreground and throw you off course. And I think that it's important for students to experience those kinds of unsettling moments where their world suddenly, you know, shifts focus. And so I I try to do that in my class through these things called protocols. And a protocol is different from a lesson plan, for instance. So, you know, a lesson plan, you have some big idea that's determined at the outset, and then you create experiences to sort of embody that idea, and then you create assessment tools aligned with the big idea, right? So it's a very coherent 
set of nested mm-hmm. processes. Mm-hmm. Whereas a protocol, there is not necessarily a big idea to begin with. You're just, nor is there necessarily an outcome you're looking for. It's rather just an experiment in opening oneself up, in changing one's attunement to what is possible in a world. And for me, that's encouraging a kind of curious risk-taking uh-huh. with oneself and one's perception. So that's really interesting because you've just given me uh, the vocabulary and a framework to understand what I've been doing for the last <laughs> couple of years um, in ways both large and small, but the, but the one that's sticking with my mind right now is one of the things I've done in these shows over time is I have this big glass jar that I call my big jar of wannabe analogies. It's got these mm-hmm. little slips of paper in it. And in each conversation, we draw out slips of paper, and my guest and I each make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is written on this slip of paper. And I have put many of these slips of paper in there over time, but I don't actually know what's in there, and other people put things in. So I I never know from any moment what's coming out. I only know that we are going to have to do something with a word or an idea that, that appears randomly on this slip of paper. This exercise terrifies people. But there's, but there's like no wrong answer, right? And, and what's so interesting about it is that people come up with really remarkable insights that they didn't even know they had. Um, and they're making connections that, you know, you wouldn't arguably necessarily make. You know, how is curiosity like ketchup? That's not a thought that one typically has in the day. And yet I make my guests do that. So that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, and what I find interesting is that the scholars you talk to, they'll be in a rhythm, they'll be going along, they're in their zone, they're in control, right? This, these are their, They're talking about their thoughts, their practices, and then you play this game with them, and it's audible, the kind of tension that they feel. Like, you can, I can, you can hear it in their right? voice over the radio. <laughs> yeah, you can literally hear them uh, get nervous. Suddenly, they, you know, there's, there's like something tentative in their voice that you can, you can really hear. And I think it's because you're opening up that kind of zone of not just talking about curiosity, but really being curious about uh-huh. something. And there's a difference between talking about it versus actually engaging in the kind of open-ended risk-taking that curiosity affords us. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Tyson Lewis, professor in the College of Visual Art and Design at the University of North Texas. He champions the many merits of distraction. How about with your students? Do you have, uh, as an educator, do you have ways to build their curiosity or distraction practices? Yeah, so uh, just in a couple of days, we'll be, we'll be doing, I'm, I'm, I've assigned my students uh, a little experiment, one of these protocols. And uh, you might also call these protocols breaching experiments. So they're ways of suspending our average everyday comings and goings, um, norms, values, practices, uh, traditions, uh, language games, and trying to interject that small, seemingly insignificant detail into their lives Mm. and allow something to sort of catch their eye or throw them off guard or throw them off balance. And so we're doing a series of breaching experiments where they have to uh, intentionally disrupt some taken-for-granted 
uh, practice of education and just record what happens when they do it. Oh, like so, what? Uh, yeah, so it could be anything, but I'll, I'll give you my example. So I'm going to start this class, which is going to happen on Thursday. I'm going to go to the class, and I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to stand there and see how long <laughs> it takes takes them to feel uncomfortable, right? Uh-huh. About because a nanosecond. The, yeah, so, uh, you know, usually I go to class, I'm like, okay, there's some official beginning to right, the class yeah. that is inaugurated by the teacher who has the power and authority to jumpstart the class, right? To demark the space and time when class begins. And I'm going to suspend that ritual, that practice, and this will make them curious, right? Or some kind of curious kernel will be introduced into the class. And I'm just and I really don't know what will happen, but I'm hoping that it will be some kind of spark for reflection on sort of the role of the authority of a teacher in a classroom. Well, it's also, you know, kind of the the value of discomfort in the learning mm-hmm. environment. You know, there's so much emphasis now on making sure that people are comfortable in the learning yeah. environment. But I think there's a lot yes. of value in discomfort in learning. Yes, yeah? yes, yes. So I, I fully agree with you. And, you know, I've, I've written some things on this. And, uh, you know, there's right now in education, in educational philosophy, there's two ways of thinking about the space of the classroom that are quite dominant. One is that the classroom is a brave space, or two, the classroom is a safe space, mm. right? So, and I'm not, I'm not discounting either of these. I think there's always a time and a place for brave spaces and safe spaces. But I think there should also be time for in, in, in education for awkward spaces, right? <laughs> yeah. Awkwardness. Yeah, yeah. Like there's, there's something generative, especially when it comes to curiosity, about letting oneself fall into an awkward situation that where you don't know who you are, where you're going, or what you're supposed to do. And experiencing that, even on a, like a visceral embodied level, like awkwardness uh, has a kind of transformative <laughs> potential within it. And that's very different from safe spaces or, or brave spaces. So yes, I think that the space of the protocol that I'm talking about, the breaching experiment, these, are, uh, these have a kind of awkward dimension to them that hopefully induces a kind of curious twist to otherwise normal uh, behaviors and or situations. So why does it matter that we're thinking about these things? Well, in educational philosophy, the whole field, I mean, this is a generalization, but I would say the large majority of the field, and this is certainly true of educational policy, is dominated by discourses of learning and practices of learning, right? And learning is always outcomes-based, goal-oriented. It's about being attentive. So it comes with all of these, all of this baggage built into it. And, you know, for me, I want to pluralize what it means to have an educational life. What does it mean to live educationally? And I think it's really important to diversify the kinds of education that we afford us and our children. Otherwise, this kind of narrowing, you know, might, might, uh, might have negative consequences we can't even foresee, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it denies the fact that throughout history, there have been multiple ways of defining educational life, multiple alternatives to sort of learning discourses and practices. And so I, I really want to uh, rehabilitate marginal 
or forgotten practices and discourses. And I really feel like distractibility is, is one of these. And here's where I got distracted, and my mind went to someone whose work expressed some of what Tyson had been talking about. My name is David Keplinger. I am a poet and a teacher of poetry. I teach at American University, and I wanted to read a couple of poems about distraction. This first poem comes from a story that is true. I was in Provincetown for the first time and visiting Mary Oliver, and she had given me her address. I had it in my pocket. I thought I knew what it was. I went to the address I thought it was, knocked on the door, and a woman answered. And I said, is this Mary Oliver's house? And she said, no, it's Stanley Kunitz's house. Completely by mistake due to my distraction. And she invited me in. Stanley Kunitz had just died. She gave me a tour of his garden. We talked for a while. I never saw her again. But this poem comes from that experience. And it's about really the beauty of distraction. It's about how distraction sometimes can lead us down paths that we wouldn't have gone otherwise. After Kunitz's Garden. Later that week, I took the twig out. It had begun to bloom, blue hollyhock, tissuey soft. To the bottle of carbolic acid went the father. To brain plaque, the weed of forgetfulness went the mother. Still, you felt the fondness for the natural thing, the mulch and the blue flower of the mallow family called hollyhock. Come in, said the woman who answered the door. From one specimen of your garden, she cut me a sprig, which I pocketed. Banished from light, from you, from its princedom, a small gautama. I had forgot that it was there, down there in the dark, doing its precise work anyway. Second poem is called Entanglement Pantoum. And a pantoum is a, is a form, a fixed form, that involves the repetition of certain lines of each stanza. And then the poem aims to end on the same line that it had begun. Uh, it's, it's probably the, the best form if you want to write about the quantum uh, phenomenon of entanglement, which Einstein and others were obsessed with. So this is a poem that is a study of an anonymous photograph of Einstein on a bike at Princeton in old age. And the lines don't really repeat, but they kind of reform into uh, same-sounding words as the poem continues along. He rides as if his home, quaint Alm, were this campus at the bell, his sweater draped with tangled, famous hair. It's fall, first day of classes. This is the campus bell. His sweater full of fist-sized holes, moth-wing frail, though the first day. After class, our Dr. E, beloved, putters, fueled by vast dead holes, wrong math, the equal opposite reactions of the light. Dr. E is our beloved computer. He bends to the left, his head turns in equal opposite reaction, then lights out smiling, the glinted metal handlebar bent, his head left to adjourn into space 
and light as he passes, old, smiling, glad to meet you, Thunderbar. Give him space, please let him pass, drop his entanglements, too famous here. Just let the man ride home, quantum by quantum. But I, I feel duty-bound to have you do an analogy with me. So you ready? <laughs> of course. Well, of course. I've set myself up you, now. I you mean, totally I to did. Do. You totally did. So I, didn't, I don't actually have the jar with me. I haven't looked at these, but I have three slips here. So let's see. <laughs> Yours is trivet. How is curiosity like a trivet? And a trivet? I don't even know what a trivet is. What is that? A trivet, describe it is, for me. Um, a trivet is... Uh, something like a that you put um, a hot item on if you were going to put it like on the table um, okay, as a it. barrier of temperatures. And um, mine is keyboard. And then we have one for the audience. So do you want to go ahead or you want me to go? No, I'll, I'll go. So okay. let me, let me, I'm just going to start talking and maybe I'll hit on something. So, <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> the philosophy of the trivet, right? Um, the, yeah, so the trivet, I guess, uh, you know, what, what I find interesting about the analogy is that the trivet supports something, right? Uh, it, it, it supports something. Um, and so perhaps we could say that, uh, you know, curiosity um, is important because it supports uh, oh, attentiveness, nice. right? Or the possibility of being attentive, yeah. or it supports uh, inquiry into the world. Uh, without it, we have what do we have? Uh, you know, we there is no opening into interesting details. So it is this, and just like the trivet, it also is sort of taken for granted. You know, uh-huh. nobody pays attention to the trivet. Uh-huh. They're uh-huh. paying attention to the thing on the trivet. Um, but, you know, maybe it's time to, to honor the trivet a little bit and the work that the trivet does, just as we should <laughs> honor the work of, of, uh, of, of curiosity. Oh, very elegant. Very elegant. Lovely. Lovely. Uh, and extra points for doing it with, you know, a word that was new to you. I like that. Um, okay, so I have keyboard. Huh. And there are, you know, there are different forms of keyboards. Um, you know, I think of, of a computer keyboard, but I also think of a musical keyboard. Mm. And I think in both cases, keyboards are places um, where we can give form to our creativity and express an idea in various mm-hmm. ways. And I think curiosity does that same thing. It's a way for us to give form and um, uh, and, and sort of essential in the creative process. Uh, and let's see, for audience, uh, college reunion. How is curiosity like a college <laughs> reunion? <laughs> oh, they're going to have fun with that one. Uh, I hope so. Okay, let us know. Hashtag uh, analogy, Facebook, Twitter, wherever wherever you go for your social media. Well, Tyson, thank you so much for this. This has really been a lot of fun. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. You can find this and all my previous episodes on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me there and on the socials at Choose to be Curious. Don't forget to send us your college reunion analogy, hashtag analogy. Many, many thanks to my guests, Tyson Lewis and David Keplinger. Links to their work and more about curiosity studies on my website. Our theme music is by Sean Ballack, and we also heard our own melody by the Piano Movers from Blue Dot Sessions. I hope you'll join us again next time, and until then, choose to be curious, or 
Maybe even allow yourself the joy of distraction. 